Welcome to Bill's Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we continue on in our series, A Mission in Exile. And the name of the sermon is called A Gospel, Word, and People Like No Other. And Pastor Spencer will be preaching from 1 Peter 1, 13 through 2, 10. Let's join Pastor Spencer How now. are we as Christians to live in exile? How are we going to survive living in exile? My name is Spencer Smith, and I have the honor and the privilege of serving here as the student discipleship pastor. And we have started, we've kicked off this series through uh, Peter's letter in 1 Peter, and we've titled it Exile, Living in Exile. And when you think about that word, some of us might be picturing a tropical island in the middle of nowhere. Some of us might be thinking of Tom Hanks screaming at a volleyball, trying to get off an island himself. But when we think about the word exile, uh, specifically within the context of 1 Peter, it's geographically, but there's also different forms of exile that you and I can experience in our own lives. There's the sense of exile that we can experience socially. There's a sense of exile that we can experience politically or culturally, that we come to a place as Christians where we realize that we don't belong in this world. Every part of this world that we will experience will be whispering, you don't belong here. This has been something that has happened since the beginning for Christians, Uh, One early church historian said that Christians were covered in animal skins and being eaten alive by dogs, and this has happened throughout history, that even today, we still feel out of place. Personally, within the U.S., maybe in the past 15 years, we felt like, man, like, this really isn't our home with everything that's happening all around us. But as I was thinking about this, That as Christians, as we go and engage the world, and we have the sense of exile, that even sometimes within the church we can feel like we're living in exile, almost like a exile within an exile. Because within the church, and even uh, here at Village Church of Gurney, you know, some of us might lean politically left and others might lean politically right. Some might view the the culture as something to be at war with and others something to participate in. Some of us might believe that Jesus is going to be coming back really soon and others might say, well, I think he's going to take his time. Some of us view that the Bears are the dominating team while others are glad they don't have an Achilles heel this season. But what advice is Peter going to give to the church, to those who are living in exile, how are they going to survive? What is he going to say that's going to get us through this sense of feeling that we don't belong in this world? And sometimes we feel out of place even within the church. He's going to have three points this morning that we're going to see that we have a gospel like none other, that we have a word like none other, and that we are a people like no other. So before we dive into the text this morning, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to open your word, and I pray that it would pierce our hearts, 
that as we read these words, that they would be something that we're reminded that are from you, God. That we would leave this place and say, yes, I need to be on mission for the gospel while in exile. I ask that personally for me, that you would increase and that I would decrease in this moment. In your name we pray, amen. So if you do have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 Peter. Open to 1 Peter. If you don't own a Bible, we actually have Bibles in the seats in front of you underneath. Um, You can go ahead and take that if you don't own a Bible. That is our gift from us to you because we believe in the power of God's word. But again, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Starting in verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Point number one for Peter this morning is that how we survive in exile is that we have a gospel like none other. Within these verses, Peter starts out from the beginning, and he he says, you should be doing these things as exiles. You should be ready for action. You should be obedient. You should be setting your hope on Christ. You shouldn't be living that old lifestyle that you had before coming to know Christ. And then he says, be holy, for I am holy. He quotes Leviticus. Now, some of these first things seem ignorantly doable, and then he says, be holy for I am holy, and it's like, oh, wait, (laughs) what? Be holy as God is holy? The same God who said, my ways are not your ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts? Like, that's the standard that we should be living? But even Jesus, he, he echoes these words in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, as exiles, we're called to be set apart, to be holy, to be different, that people should be thinking to themselves, there's something different about that individual. Now, is Peter and Jesus' standard for Christian living too high? Is it too unattainable? Are they both kind of sounding kind of legalistic where we'd be like, oh, hold on, like you're kind of doing the whole works by salvation there, Peter. But he moves from doing to done, right? 
Because when we look at the past, when we look at the work of Jesus and what he did on the cross, the gospel reminds us that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do these things. But what does Peter say the gospel is? He kind of gives us a definition or a description within these verses. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father, you see right there, like God isn't this God that has created this world and put uh, his people in it and abandoned it, but that God is near to us. Peter says that the, the gospel is eternal. It's not going to perish. There is nothing that can stop the gospel. He says that we have been ransomed. At what price? The costly, precious blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 20 also says that uh, this was something that uh, before the foundation of the world was made manifest, that this was a plan that God had from the very beginning. It's not like God was surprised that we messed up the plan. <laughs> it's not like God's like, okay, they've done this, now I, I have to figure out my next step, but that this was his plan from all along, that he's sovereign. And ultimately, the gospel should call us to glorify God, that that is where our hope is. If you can lose what you set your hope upon, you should probably find something else. If you can lose what you set your hope upon, we should probably find something else. Because this is why we have a gospel like none other. So think about it this way. So picture a, a man who is walking along, and all of a sudden he falls into a pit. I don't know why the pit is there. I don't know where it came from, but just bear with me. So he's walking along, he, he falls into this pit, and he uh, wakes up from uh, being knocked out, and he comes to himself, and he's like, okay, I'm stuck in this pit. And so he tries to get out. He tries to climb the walls, but he can't get out. And so he sits down, and he just waits around for somebody to come and rescue him. Eventually, a man, come along, a man comes along named Muhammad. Muhammad says, hey, um... There's some rocks down there. Maybe you could build some kind of ladder, some kind of pillar, and then you could get yourself out of this pit. And so the man does that, but the rocks keep falling down, and he can't get out. So he sits back down, and he waits for the next person. The next person to come along is Buddha. <laughs> Buddha looks at the man who is now a little bit more dirtied, a little a bit with, more without hope, and he says, don't worry, just wait till you die. <laughs> you might end up out of the pit. You might get lucky, and even if the next life doesn't work out for you, you have the next one and the next one and the next one. And so he leaves despaired. And finally, a third person comes along whose name is Dawkins. He says, you've been looking outward. What you really need to do is you need to look inward. <laughs> if you look inward, you can get yourself out of this pit. Each and every single one of us, we are born into this pit of sin, death, and hell and needing to escape. But what does the eternal, costly, sovereign, God-glorifying, hope-giving gospel encourage us to tell this man? That religiosity is man getting to God, but the gospel is God getting to man. 
Religiosity is man trying to get out of the pit to God, but the gospel is that God came down to us. Religion says that this will cost you, but the gospel, Jesus says that this will cost me. By my own blood, I will ransom you. Do you see how we have a holy gospel like none other? Nobody else can proclaim this, that God came down and rescued us. This past year, after living in um, Gurney and Lake County, you know, there's always these false gospels that are going to be giving you a false hope. They're all throughout the world. And as Christians, and as we're in exile, we need to be thinking, okay, what is the false gospel that I am tempted to believe in? And this is what I think it is that we face here in Lake County. It's autonomous consumerism. Autonomous consumerism. What do I mean by this? That the false promises that Spencer Smith is tempted with is that I have power over my life and I have choices. You see, this is the place where we can utilize the power to feel safe, protected, and to manufacture the kind of lives that we want, right? You wanna find the perfect house for yourself? We have options. (laughs) If you wanna pursue money in a career, there's a plethora of options. There are 10 different kinds of chicken that we can eat within a mile. We have choices. Are these options inherently evil? No. But they train us to believe a different gospel that bleeds into our lives, that sometimes when we do enter into the pits of despair as exiles, we say, oh, I could use this false gospel to help me get out of the pit. But really, Jesus is that only hope. Our gospel is like none other. Do you believe that, that our gospel is imperishable, eternal, costly, bought by the God-man himself through his own blood? But how do we know this? How do we know, how do you and I know that we have a gospel like none other to propel us through exile? This, right here, right? So Peter moves from encouraging us that there's a gospel like none other, that there is also a word like none other. Let's read verses 22 through 25. Look down with me. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, and this word is the good news that was preached to you." You see, Peter comes and he uses that language again, right? So imperishable, imperishable language, saying that our hope can be rooted in God's word. Notice that in verse 23, he uses these two key words, living and abiding word of God. 
Now, sometimes uh, when we think about the Bible, we think that it's the, it's the very thing that gives us life. But Peter uses a different word. He uses a word that means, surprise, living, <laughs> which is weird because he says that this inanimate object is actually alive. And not only is it alive, he says that it's going to abide, that it's going to remain, that this living thing will never die. Nothing can stop it. It is imperishable. So he, he gives them a history lesson to remind them of this truth found in Isaiah chapter 40. That's where these uh, quotations are from in Isaiah chapter 40. But to give a little context of Isaiah 40, if you read Isaiah 39, I encourage you to go back and read it, that at the time, Isaiah, who is the, the covenant enforcer, is uh, living underneath the reign of King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah is facing Babylonian captivity. And he says, just so long as there's peace in my time, I don't care what happens to the next generation. But Isaiah says, well, enslavement is coming. Your generation is going to pass. You see, this is what it says in Isaiah 40, verse 6 through 11. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up, high to the mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with his might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You see, when Peter comes and he, he quotes this Old Testament passage, he says that the generations will not last forever, but God's word will. What did the Jewish people have? They had God's word. What did the New Testament believers have? They had God's word like none other. What did the Christians in China for the past hundred years have? They had God's word. What do the Christians in the Middle East have today? They have God's word. And this reminds us that even as exiles, as one generation passes on to the next, guess what? God's word is imperishable. It is like none other. One of the best ways to visually see this is this. Look at this uh, graph with me. This is what's called a hyperlink graph. Uh, I showed this to the youth group last year, and they're like, mind blown. I love this thing. So what somebody did is they looked at every cross-reference throughout all of Scripture, and every time there was a cross-reference, they put a line down. 
So it came out to be like 60,000. So if you look at the very beginning of the graph, you have Genesis. And then if you get somewhere to the other half where you have John, where in Genesis it says, in the beginning, and then John says, in the beginning was the word, that the person put a line right there. But all we see in this picture is that we have a word like none other, right? How can we see something like that and say, well, you know, it's probably (laughs) man-made. But we see how God is at work. Because as exiles, the thing that is going to be attacked is this, right? If this gets destroyed, then that's no good. But I love what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, you don't have to defend the Bible because it's like a lion. (laughs) It will defend itself. This will defend itself as you are in exile. And so we move from a gospel like none other from a word to like none other. Naturally, this will lead us to Peter's final point, that we are people like none other. Let's look at the next verses. Starting in verse one, chapter two. So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, there's a lot (laughs) in these verses, even all the verses that we're going through today. But one of the ways in which we can understand Peter's uh, epistle to understand his letter to us is simply by understanding Peter. I encourage you to... Uh, go back and to study and to learn more about who Peter is because then we can understand why is he saying what he is saying. So if you remember in Matthew's gospel that when Jesus comes to Peter, he, he calls him as a fisherman. He says, hey, guess what? No longer are you going to be catching fish. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. But then in 14 chapters later, uh, Jesus comes to Peter and says, hey, on you I will build my church. But... 
we see that one of the first leaders of the church has a, uh, a foot-shaped mouth. <laughs> he denies Jesus three times. In the book of Acts, when God says, hey, take up and eat, Peter says, sorry, that's against my religion, <laughs> to which I'm sure God's thinking in the back of his mind, you mean the one that I established for you? But Peter believes in a gospel like none other. He believes in a word like none other so that he can see that it changes our hearts so that he can write, put away all malice and all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, slander. Long for the pure spiritual milk if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. But notice like what Peter doesn't do, right? <laughs> this would be our temptation. <laughs> this would be my temptation. Um, he doesn't say, hey, guess what? Remember that time Jesus said that I'm the rock that his church will be built upon? <laughs> he doesn't say, hey, guess what? Remember I'm the leader? Hey, act like me as you go through exile. Peter doesn't say that. What he says, and this is where I want to hone in on, is he, he calls us all these different things as exiles. He calls us a spiritual house, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There's so much to unpack in these verses. But this is how he describes his people in exile. And some of these descriptions are pretty wild, Understanding the Old Testament, through the Abrahamic covenant, God was using his people to be a unique nation to the world so that all the world can be blessed. But within the nation of Israel, there were people who were called priests, right? And priests were supposed to be mediators between God and the people, and their jobs were pretty wide-ranged. But one of their main jobs was to take care of the temple, and it was really interesting because as I was studying the background of Peter, they believed that it was written sometime in the 60s. But what happens in 70 AD? The temple gets destroyed. The priesthood no longer exists. Or does it? You see, Peter says that you are a royal priesthood. That is our title but unfortunately, due to a, a desire for spiritual succession throughout the first 15 centuries of church history, we would have formal priests. And at one point, the priesthood would become very corrupt in the 16th century. And an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther would come and he would say, man, we really have to change some of our theology. <laughs> Something has to change. And apart from his five solas, one of the things that he pushed is the priesthood of all believers, that the church isn't a kingdom with priests, it's a kingdom of priests. But unfortunately, today, even within our own context, within the church in the U.S., we still struggle with this. Even as Protestants, we tend to embrace a more Catholic view of how churches should be ran. In short, sometimes we're, we're more Catholic than we care to admit. 
Now, that sounds a little strange, but let me persuade us all. You see, it's easy for us to believe in the methodology and the philosophy of ministry by reducing it to paying pastors to lead programs. Consider the most common question when somebody is church shopping, right? That's the language that we use when we're looking for a church, but church shopping, there's that autonomous consumerism showing up again, right? That sneaks into our lives. But what people often ask is, what do you have for me? This is where autonomous consumerism creeps into the church, where sometimes uh, Christianity can just be reduced to different flavors of Christianity, where we can just easily go through the drive-through and we don't have to get out of the car. But Peter says that in order for Christians to survive exile and how we have survived exile for 2,000 years isn't through having vibrant programs such as youth ministry or young adults or homogenous interest uh, groups, but by embracing a royal priesthood of all believers. Am I saying that Pastor David, Robbie, and Eric and I are going to put in our resignation? No more priests. Everybody's a priest, and we're just going to randomly pick people to preach on Sunday mornings. No, not at all. But what I'm saying is this. Peter's advice for us to survive exile is to put royal priesthood over programs that you and I can be called to be on mission, that our philosophy, our belief as Christians isn't that we've, we find people stuck in this pit who are trying to get out of the pit and say, hey, guess what? I have a youth ministry program for you. Oh, I have this opportunity for you. But how Peter is calling us to live on mission as exiles, as this royal priesthood, is that there has been a great high priest who came down into the pit, and I am willing to get into that pit of life with you. This is why we say, you are God's strategy at Village Church. And it's really, really essentially picking between programs and priesthood is like picking between what is easy and what is right. But what does this look like at Village Church? Our aim is for each individual to not play the priest in each other's lives, but to be the priest, to be the mediator, to bear each other's burdens, to cry with one another, to preach the gospel like none other, to preach a word why? Because we have a word like none other to release that lion into each other's lives so that it can devour the sin. But what does it look like to be a royal priest in our church? I'll give you an example. And I hope that this fleshes out the desire and what it looks like that Peter's trying to communicate with being priests to one another. One of the main reasons why I'm a youth pastor isn't because I get to hang out with students. It's not the retreats. It's not the Chick-fil-A. The Chick-fil-A is close, but it's essentially because of parents. Parents, you are God's mediator, God's priest for your students, called to display a gospel like none other and a word 
like none other. And over the years, I've cried with a lot of parents who just don't know what to do anymore. But I believe that we've only done this vertical priesthood of parenting where it's God, parents, and us, but we need to move across to a horizontal parenting of priesthood where parents, we need to come together and say, I'm really struggling. And not only that, even if you're not a parent, to still do that. To say, hey, I see you. I care about you. But this is hard to do because when you share how your student is struggling, oftentimes it displays our failures as parents, and this is why it's easier to pick a program over a priesthood. Because if they know blank about my student, then I will be exposed, and even worse, my student might be exposed. But if we, as parents and grandparents, truly believe in the priesthood of Christ, then we do not need to be perfect in our parenting because Jesus was our perfect great high priest. But what if we play it safe? What if we just pick the programs over the priesthood? What would that look like? What would it do and continue to do with our children? What's at stake? So last Sunday at youth group, I did this. I had students fill out what's one thing they wish their parents knew that they just can't tell them. These are anonymous. What is one thing that you wish your parents would know? And I'm going to read them. And what's going to happen is you're going to think, which one is my kid? I don't, as a parent, I don't want you to go in that direction. I want you to run in the direction of your student where they are crying out. They are wanting to have conversations with us. But then secondly, don't think to yourself, oh, whose student was that? Because it's not their students, it's our students. It's not their kids, their problems, it's us. It's village students all together. When I say I'm fine, I'm probably not. And most times, a ride on my bike will clear my mind. Sometimes I feel trapped, being very traditional and understanding or seeing a different view point in society. My anxiety. My only good friends live far away, and I don't have any other friends. It's hard to make good friends. People at my school are horrible, and they're kind of jerks. I understand your point the first time. I will ask for clarification if I don't. It's hurtful when you yell and go on and on and hold a grudge for days. I wish my parents knew how much pressure is on us. The peer pressure is overwhelming. I feel like people are judging me all the time. 
I want my parents to know that I'm not really that bad compared to kids my age. Even after you become a Christian, you still have a lot of pressure from others and to go with the flow. I have a guy best friend and I don't know how you would feel if I hung out with him or him being my friend in general. I feel like my parents put cleaning over school. I commit adultery in my mind all the time. I wish my mom wasn't so stressed all the time. I'm failing my math class. Y'all are gonna check and find out who that was. <laughs> it's hard to make new friends and I'm having a lot of anxiety, but I also wish that my parents would spend more time with me. They're always busy and they don't spend time with me. I sneak food into my room every night <laughs> and I do things that my parents don't know about in my room. I wish they knew how much I was going through, that I struggle with my grades and I'm scared of failing my parents and not making them proud. I wanna have a better, closer relationship with you and I don't know how to exactly. I'm trying to figure myself out right now. Let me process. I'm more responsible than you think. I can manage myself, social media and homework. I feel lost and lonely. I don't know what to do in my life. I feel like if I tell you something, you're going to hold it against me. I wish my parents knew how exhausting trying to be perfect is. Middle school is harder than you think. P.S., you should buy me a loft bed. <laughs> <laughs> the pressure of being a student. The locker room is horrible. I hate gym. I don't like answering our longer bid questions. Older people don't respect us. My faith is my own. I wish my parents knew that they could trust me. I want more money for doing chores even if you ask me to clean. P.S. I love you. Most nights, I cry myself to sleep. I feel like I've lost all my friends. How much I actually struggle with mental health and they don't feel like it exists. I hit rock bottom a few years ago and they didn't even notice. Teens are dealing more now than when they were teenagers. I have more emotions than I want. Everything I do or say, I worry you will think about. I'm sorry, I never meant to hurt anyone. I feel stuck, like I'm drowning. I don't want to be home, I love you. I don't always wanna talk, it's not personal. I'm not going to tell you if I'm not doing good mentally. How much I love and appreciate you. The words you say are more hurtful than you think when you don't mean it. It scars and puts holes in our hearts. I'm scared of failing you, mom and dad. I wish my parents would remember to put candy in my lunch. <laughs> 
I'm not perfect and I'm scared. Sometimes I will fall short and you will lose faith in me and God. I'm burnt out. It's really hard to let go of my past. My parents don't understand how much I appreciate all that they do for me. We need a gospel like none other. We need a word like none other. And we need to be a people like none other. We need to be priests to one another. And I encourage you to encourage each other as parents because we can't do this alone. And parenting is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many other people hurting in this church. This is just 40 Look around, be a priest, preach the gospel, be on mission while you're in exile. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we have the hope of the gospel like none other and a word like none other. I pray that you would give us strength and courage each and every single day as we do feel out of place that here at Village Church, that we would feel a little bit more at home, but that we would choose priesthood over programs. We would choose tears over formalities, and that we would learn to bear each other's burdens. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.